Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey and on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at Pod. In this episode, I speak with professor of English literature, Karen Swallow Pryor, about Joseph Conrad's influential novella, Heart of Darkness. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really thrilled to be speaking with Karen Swallow Pryor this afternoon. Karen is Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's the author of many books, including most recently On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Her writing has appeared at Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things Vox, to name just a few. She's a founding member of the Pelican Project, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education, a senior fellow at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, and a member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. She and her husband live on a 100-year-old homestead in central Virginia with horses, dogs, and chickens, and lots of books. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. It's so great to be with you, Jennifer. I'm super excited to have you. I'm I'm really, really thrilled. I've wanted to talk to you ever since I became aware of, of who you were, which I'm pretty sure was when the New Yorker did that profile on you. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah so, so what year was that? That was um, January 2019. So just, you know, just under two years ago. Yeah. yeah. So how yeah. do you, do you mind, how did that come about? Yeah, the the profile was published in uh, January of 2019, and um, it came about rather organically because the journalist Eliza Griswold had uh, been writing some stories um, the year before about different uh, elements of evangelicalism, particularly in the Church Too, Me Too movement. And so um, she had talked with me briefly um, for another story and gotten a quote and uh, consulted me a few more times for other stories that she was working on and um, eventually just decided she wanted to do a profile of me. Yeah, well, it was an incredible profile. It's how I initially came to really admire you, but it was also how I came to be aware of your work. And then I was like, wow, this woman is doing like <laughs> this thing that I'm completely interested in. And I think it was around the same time that I purchased your book, your most recent book, which is On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. But I, I wondered if we could kind of talk about how this book came to be. So mm -hmm. I don't know that much about the trajectory of your career or how you came to have this certain kind of literary criticism, which is very much engaged with the sort of philosophy that I'm doing. Uh, so I just wanted to invite you to speak about that. Sure. Um, well, of course, you know, I, I 
entered a PhD program in uh, literature without knowing why or what I was going to do, didn't even plan to teach, you know, as, as one does these things <laughs> early in life. Um, and then finished that, got the teaching job uh, where I was at Liberty for 21 years um, and really just began to write about literature the way that I talk about it in the classroom, which really is to weave together um, the text and life and the Christian faith, since I teach in a Christian in, in institution. Um, and so my first book, uh, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, is kind of a, a spiritual and literary memoir that that does that. And by the time I got around to writing on reading well, I, I knew I wanted to write more about books. And it was really my editor who pushed me. Um, I, I have the same editor as James K.A. Smith at Brazos, and I'm a you know huge fan and also just been hugely influenced by um, Smith's uh, liturgical anthropology. And so this I so I, I came into this idea of formation and virtue ethics through Smith and some other writers. And so my editor, um, you know, it encouraged me to write about literature as a kind of practice and to talk about virtue. Well, I actually had never studied virtue ethics. I'd read a lot about virtue. I teach some of the virtues and, and the vices when they show up in medieval literature and those things. Mm -hmm. And so I just began, you know, I said, I want to learn about the virtues. And so I started diving into those and thinking about different works of literature where they were not just um, just lessons about virtues, but how we can actually become more virtuous people by engaging in these in these stories. And so the the book on reading well just turned out entirely different from what I envisioned it. But I'm glad well, you I, like it. <laughs> I mean it's sort of what this podcast is is really all about. But I'm curious, are you just kind of completely self self taught in the virtue ethics literature? You just kind of did it on your own? Uh, yeah. Yes. yes. Well, you do a great job. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I, I, I read a lot. So <laughs> yeah, all the, yeah. All the best material is cited. So <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so just to talk a little bit more about the main thesis of, of this book on reading well. So it kind of seems like what you're trying to do in in this book is to say that great works of literature can reveal very important insights about the human person and about the virtues. Of course, I agree with this, uh, but I just would like to invite you to say more about how you came to think that and, and how that really works. Because of course, a lot of great literature is about terrible people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, it's, there's a whole field of, of traditional literary criticism that's called different things, but it's often called just moral criticism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that does what you just described, sort of literature. We can read literature and learn things from the, the lessons it provides, you know, whether they're not negative or, po or positive examples. Um, and so part of what I do is that. But then there's this other, you know, that's the content of literature. But there's another element of literature, which I, which we don't pay enough attention to, and that's its its form. 
um, that it's, it, it, it is a literary form. It's an artistic form and that's aesthetic criticism. And so at one, ex on one extreme, you can judge literature or work of art entirely on its form and that's aestheticism, or you can judge it entirely on its content and that's moralism. And I really tried to balance those two because that's how I approach it in teaching. Um, I ha actually developed a course, a graduate course, um, called Christian Poetics, which is just basically about literary aesthetics. And uh, and so I've been thinking about these things for a long time. And so I think when we read a good work of literature, it's doing both things. It's revealing you know, sort of lessons to us or insights about life and the world. Um, but it's also, by its very nature, it's a different experience from, say, you know, reading a sermon or reading an essay or newspaper article we we can you know be get similar information from different forms but the literary form is unique in that it requires it, it forms us as we read it in a different way it's not just well to borrow smith's language um it's not just informative it's formative it doesn't just inform us it forms us uh, and a lot of people don't know how to have that experience because we live in this culture where we read so many things for information and we speed read and we get, you know, summaries and we read short pieces um, that people, uh, we, we've, we've lost the art of simply getting immersed in a work of literature and letting it form us. And so, um, yeah, so, so the, the book really tries to address both of these things. We can talk about the kinds of lessons we learn about virtues from the characters, but also I try to talk about that vicarious experience we get as we make these judgments, we enter the eyes, you know, the mind and eyes of this character and see the world and, and have to make the judgments and decisions as the narrative takes us along. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about what you're doing in this book, especially in your I think pretty very careful introduction where you lay out a lot of these ideas. You know, you're not reducing literature to didacticism and you really resist reducing literature to any kind of usefulness or saying, well, it has this use value for us. And you focus more on how the experience, right? The encounter with literature as art is potentially transformative. And that I think is really, that seems true to me that all great art has this potential. You know, what is it about literary art in particular that you think, you know, an encounter with literary art that you think has maybe a unique kind of potential? That is a great question um, because, of course, I do love the visual arts. I love paintings and uh, I'm not musical, but I love music and I love film. But all those things, you know, they're a different kind of art form. And what's unique about literature is that, first of all, it is an art that uses words. Um, and we don't tend to think about how important that is. I mean, we are, we are creatures of language. Um, we are, that is an expression of being made in the image of God, who is the word. And so there's something very powerful and spiritual and even sacred, I think, about just immersing ourselves in the world of words, whether that, you know, whether that's, you know, in the oral tradition or the, the literate tradition. Um, and, and experiencing 
a form that unfolds in a linear progression word by word. I mean, if we look at a painting, we see the whole thing and we can, it, it occurs, you know, it's an experience that occurs in space. We see it and we can look at different parts of it. We can let our eye move to one corner or the other corner and the, and allow the painting to draw us in based on it, how it uses light and, and, and juxtaposition. But the way that we read literature is we have to read it one word at a time and we have to experience that process in this linear kind of logical um, pr progression in time rather than space. And even texts that play with time, play with chron chronology or something like that are still, we're still, we are experiencing it in time. And so I think what, so part of the trouble that we have today in reading literary art as opposed to just a blog is that we have lost you know we've forgotten how to experience to to experience the artfulness of words arranged in a certain order and revealing an experience in a certain order um and that's what i want to draw attention to and that's you know that's what i try to help my students um understand that there's a huge difference from going to the wikipedia or sparknote summary of a story and learning what happens in the plot um reading a work of literature is so much more than just what you know what happens in the plot it's part of the is that how how that plot unfolds and how the the characterization unfolds through the medium of words do you think that part of it is how in in reading literature you become i don't know in a in a kind of weird and complicated way your own emotional life gets bound up with these characters i i do i think that's you know we think in words we, in our own inner thought life is it is one of words i mean we even you know we're quietly going out about our day and thinking and and thinking using words to to plan out what we'll do next or using words to think about how mad that phone call we just had make made us or you know we our inner thought life is one of language and so when we enter a book you know our inner thought life is engaged with those words so we are experiencing in a very powerful and pro profound way inside our minds this story that's taking place or this poem or this drama uh and it it's it it replicates it, it exactly what we do when we're you know immersed in our own inner experiences and thoughts yeah, I'm curious. So I have, um, well, I have a lot of kids, but I have, <laughs> I have kids now in high school and I have kids that are like, you know, in elementary school. And it's really frustrating to me the way that literature is, is taught to them. It's kind of like taught uh, in a sociological way. Like, yeah, like it's just conveying information. Mm -hmm. And then when you're tested on it, you're just like extracting the information. It's like, well, you know, what do we learn about migrant farmers by reading Steinbeck? And it's like, mm -hmm. well, I could have learned about migrant farmers by just reading like some history about them. You know, I didn't have to read mm -hmm. Steinbeck. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, like, how do you think it, it, I mean, how do you think literature should be taught, especially like, like kind of all along the way? I mean, I know that you and I both teach college students. And right now I'm teaching literature and philosophy, and I'm sure you obviously teach literature all the time. But like my impression is of my students who come into my class, they don't know how to read literature. Mm -hmm. They really have no idea. I mean, how do you correct for that? Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, your diagnosis is exactly right. Um, that is how literature is taught. And it's, you know, I, I mean, this is what Flannery O'Connor was writing about in Mystery and Manners, you know, half, more than half a century ago now about this sociological um, mind worldview, really, that affects all teaching and literature. And, um, you know, I, I don't I don't know how to correct. For, I mean, this really is the expression of modernity, right, um, where you know, we are so consumed by data and numbers and sociology and social science and quantifiable rather than, you know, quality. Um, so that is the state of it. And so I think, you know, when I, I'm teaching freshmen, especially, uh, and, and English majors uh, in the upper levels, I mean, the first thing is to just recognize what you just did, to know that they're coming to us with this bad training and this bad understanding. And no, for me, I, I know that my students are going to go to SparkNotes or whatever and get the summary. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, and so I, I spend a lot of time with them sort of counter, countering that. And, and because, because, I mean, I do think we do learn wonderful things about literature. We do learn history and sociology and, and different perspectives. And, and I don't, that, that's a good, you know, that's half of what we get out of um, the gift of literature. Um, but I counter that and try to balance it by spending more time close reading um, and modeling it for my students, helping my students do it, helping them to get that immersive experience where they can actually just feel what happens when we let the words do their work. I remember one of my favorite experiences of this recently uh, was spending about 20 minutes in my women's literature class on the opening line of Jane Eyre. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We talked, we just talked about that line. Um, yeah. and you know, that's not something you're going to get from spark notes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do you say to someone who says, no, look, it's art for art's sake. What do you say to that? Well, again, this is what the great, um, gift of, of virtue ethics is that, um, and, and, and it's so applicable to, to all of life is that virtue and truth is in in the middle in the crux right i mean so we need to appreciate both we need to you know we need to appreciate the content of literature but also appreciate its form and and it is not you know virtuous to go to either extreme um you cannot separate form from content any more than you can separate truth from love and and doctrine from practice. Um, but we live in a world where our impulse is always, uh, as human beings, to gravitate toward one extreme over the other. And the real, the real challenge for us in being virtuous, holistic human beings is to uh, resist that temptation to go from to one extreme or the other, whether we're talking about, you know, politics or, um, or art. Yeah, so there's another slightly different direction that you could have taken that. <laughs> and I'm going to, no, I mean, so that's all sort of, um, I mean, that's all really good. I've, I've nothing against any of that. But here's a, here's a possibility, and I'm just wondering how you will react to it. So there's kind of a more maybe platonic strand within virtue ethics that's maybe represented by somebody like Iris Murdoch, where you have this idea that, yeah, virtue is really important and that's the goal. But really fundamental to cultivating it is 
contemplative, you know, modes of engagement, which, which for her, you know, art is at the center of that. It's not the whole of it, but it's at the center. And the idea is that like, you know, experiences of beauty, mm. right, are also potentially transformative. Mm. I'm wondering if you find that at all congenial to what you're trying to say, because it's another way of taking the art for art's sake, but in a slightly different direction. Yeah, I, I do. I do think um, there is that aspect. There is something transcendent about art. There is something that um, takes us outside of ourselves. It's decentering, as Elaine Scarry would would say, I guess. Um, and so I think. So I think that's important. I mean, I. I I think that's part of the of an entire picture. Like for ourselves, we're we're striving for um, virtue, but there part of that process is just to swing the pendulum back is to get outside of ourselves, right? Because some, there's a way that we can be focused so entirely on our own virtue or our own selves without recognizing sort of the context for that and recognizing something bigger and greater and art and beauty. Um, do that for us. And so I mean, for Murdoch, she thinks that there is this element of self-transcendence and that it's very crucial because she thinks we're just so selfish mm. <laughs> and self-oriented and that contemplation in all of its forms just sort of helps us um, to have contact with reality that, as you said, is greater than ourselves. And it's interesting also because she's always contrasting art with fantasy and mm -hmm. escapism, mm -hmm. right? And I think that this is also something that I struggle to communicate with my students. It's not escapism. It's not fantasy. Mm -hmm. If you're really having an aesthetic experience, I think that in some sense, you have to be coming into contact with something that is true or good or or, or beautiful. I mean, I think I think the emphasis would be there, and I wonder if you agree with that. That especially in in literary art, yes, it reveals truth, it reveals insights, but there's some deep connection with beauty that would make mm -hmm. it different from just philosophy or theology or something else. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that gets to the sort of formative aspect of of any aesthetic experience. So, and I I love to. Um, you know, especially with my students to dwell for a bit on the, the, the fact that aesthetic refers to sort of, I mean, in, in its etymology to a bodily sensation, right? Um, so that that's what makes reading a work of literature or seeing a painting different from just getting that information from, you know, an encyclopedia entry. There is what an aesthetic experience does is it, it affects us bodily. Um, and so even as it sort of takes us out of ourselves, it does that. I mean, if we think of the most extreme experience, you know, experience of the sublime or something, right. I mean, to use, um, Edmund Burke's terms. I mean, there's something uh, the, to experience the sublime is, is to experience something that we associate with, with fear or death. Um, and, and, in in like in a, you know, in a, not necessarily a negative way, but in a, you know, more in a mortal way. Um, and that, so that's both transcendent, but bodily too. And so, 
you can't really separate the most sublime transcendent experience from what happens to us internally and in, in our bodily reactions, whether it's a, you know, quickened heart or shortness of breath or just um, a release, you know, from uh, tension and stress that just giving that up ourselves provides. So, yeah. 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 Well, you know, we're animals. We're right, right. a certain kind of animal. We're not right. angels. So I want to kind of try to think about Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness in light of these sort <laughs> of um, themes. And, you know, that can get a little bit tricky because, you know, it's it's not exactly an, up, an uplifting novella. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not filled with really good people. But I guess, like, before we get into the novella, I just want to invite you to say for our listeners, uh, you know, who might not be familiar, you know, just who Conrad was and and what his influence has been. I mean, he's often kind of described as uh, an an early modernist or or maybe one of the one of the fathers of modernism. So I thought maybe you could also talk about how he helped to shape that movement and. Sure, sure. So, uh, so Conrad is, you know, is claimed um, by uh, you know, British literature. So, I mean, that's that, that's my specialty. So that's how I end up teaching him. Um, it, because he wrote, although he was, um, you know, his uh, original language was uh, Polish, uh, and English was his third language, you know, he wrote uh, his novels in English. And of course, that that background really is important. And in, in, I think, um, as sort of an insider outsider in, in what he was able to accomplish in Heart of Darkness. Um, but so he was writing um, in the latter half of the 19th century. And in England, this is, you know, this is the second half of, of the Victorian age, which is often called, you know, the age of progress, uh, among other things. But in the second half of the Victorian age, where which was defined by so much optimism and hope and um, and, and technological and sociological advances, um, the second half of that period began to see sort of the dark underside of these great um, accomplishments of the Industrial Revolution, of technology, of colonialism and imperialism. Um, so England was, you know, was, was the the reigning empire of the world, uh, not only in its own, uh, on the island, but in its territories all across the country, um, I mean, across the globe. And uh, Conrad was a writer who was, who was in the thick of this, who was reaping the benefits of, um, of this imperial country, but also as an artist and as a human being, kind of um, able to see past some of the veneer and question um, some of what was happening. Um, and so Heart of Darkness was is, is quite autobiographical. Um, it's drawn directly from Conrad's own experiences as um, a ship captain going into the Congo. Um, so he witnessed the kinds of things that he is writing about in this story, but of course this is a work. This is a work of art, and so um, he's drawing on his own life, but also writing something that is very artistic in terms of how it interrogates uh, his real experience. Yeah, I mean, just picking up on a thread of that because you talk about sort of like the dark underside of 
you know, the industrial revolution and progress. I mean, I, I also think he, in some, to some extent, begins to expose some of the underside of our scientific progress. There are all of these subtle, maybe not so subtle hints to like the beginnings of race science. In, in this novella, you know, where they're constantly like talking about, you know, nose structures mm -hmm. and the size of your skull. And we start to see some of these things that eventually will become very quickly in the early 20th century, you know, full-blown eugenics. Right. And of course, we know where that went. He's kind of exposing or maybe we're not as enlightened and good as, as we like to tell ourselves. But I also think, well, I mean, I guess I'll just put it as a question. Is he doing something very different, just formally speaking? Mm -hmm. You know, the narrative structure of this is a little bit weird. And, and that's also true of, of some of his other works, like Lord Jim. Is there something like innovative that he's doing mm -hmm. on a formal level? Yeah, of course. One of the w ways that we place Conrad is um, at the forefront of, of the modernist movement in literature, which um, was a rejection of sort of the traditional forms and styles and um, approaches. And so um, Conrad is doing that. I mean, this is what makes his, his work is so interesting because it bridges so many different dis divides and, and it, it, it harkens to the past and also to the future, uh, predicts the future. And so in some ways, his novel, his novella follows some traditions. It's written in three parts. Um, you know, so many works were written, ser published serially that that was common to have something written in three, three volumes or three sections. And so that's traditional, but even just by making it a novella, um, it's, it's, it's a kind of this, this work that doesn't fit neatly into the already given genres. I mean, it's not a short story. It's not a novel. I mean, the, no the novel was sort of the height of the Victorian literary art. That that's, there was a preeminent um, form of the age. Uh, you know, big, fat, long novels <laughs> for, for Victorians, like everything else sort of excessive. And so Conrad comes along and like other modernists, it's, he, his story is much more stripped down. It's much more sparer. Um, yet it's also denser. It's, I mean, the, the best advice I give to anyone reading this, particularly my students, is to almost treat it like it's a poem. Um, I mean, it's so dense that you can't just skim along. Uh, and then, of course, he does um, not only write this sort of uncategorizable um, prose narrative, um, but he still he still calls back to so many other important influences, such as you know the rhyme of the ancient mariner, um, which was you know uh, written a century before, um, in setting this entire thing up as a frame narrative uh, and playing. Except it's much more uh, it's much more complicated than than earlier frame narratives because. I mean, frame narrative is just basically a, a huge, you know, a big story, but has a frame around it of some outside narrator. Mm -hmm. But but this story has so many layers. I mean, we have a story within a story within a story within a story. Um, so we have Marlowe telling this story uh, that's already taken place. And but it takes us forever to kind of get into the heart where we find the center of the story, which is Mr. Kurtz. Um, mm -hmm. And it's his story that really is the heart. I have a lot of questions about the, narr the narration and, and what's going on there and kind of why he's choosing to set it up as he does. But I think it'll just be helpful first if we just talk about 
you know, these two main characters, Marlo sure, and, sure. and Kurtz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for, yeah. So, so Marlo is, uh, is, uh, well, we actually, we actually have, we actually have, um, even, a, a, another layer because, um, because we have, uh, we have the, 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 the first person narrator who's retelling Marlo's story, but so Marlo is the, the main, I mean, it's just a, a bunch of, uh, a handful of, of men going, who are headed to the Congo on a boat. Uh, and while they're waiting for their boat to go, to take off, um, one of the, the men whose name is Marlo begins to tell his story, which is pretty much the entire, almost the entire story of Heart of Darkness. And so Marlo was uh, sent to go into the, into the Congo uh, by a trading company to retrieve one of their best tradesmen, um, the best profit makers for the company, this mysterious Kurtz who had kind of disappeared and, and hadn't been heard from. And he, that was his job is to go in and, and uh, retrieve him. And so the way the story is, the way Marlowe tells the story and the way we sort of experience it is, is he talks about, you know, not just going into the heart of darkness, but um, as he arrives in Africa and, and, you know, the things that he encounters there and uh, the way that he sees um, and he goes in with all of the common European white civilization tropes and stereotypes in his head um, and repeats some of them along the way. But yet, because he's, uh, you know, he, he has these eyes to see, he his the way that he narrates the story he is able to report them in ways that cause us as a reader to kind of question like oh and and, and you know that's one of the, one of the themes is what constitutes civilization because um you know because what seems on the surface to be civilized when uh marlo arrives turns out not to be yeah i mean it's um yeah so there are well, I mean, sorry, just to pick up one thread of that, you know, it seems like Mr. Kurtz himself is supposed to be kind of a paragon or exemplar of, right. at least in the beginning, sort of the best that Europe, you know, has to offer. He's very cultured, although it's sort of suggested that like maybe he didn't exactly have the best, the, the best heritage or something like there's like some suggestion that he was out there in the first place because he needed money which suggests that he's not of the highest classes, but somehow like he, you know, is supposed to represent European culture and sophistication mm -hmm. and ingenuity, maybe like leadership. And of course that doesn't really serve him well, <laughs> <laughs> or at least, you know, Kurtz doesn't, I mean, things don't end well there. And I'm completely happy to talk about endings and I don't worry at okay, all about okay. spoilers. So please don't hold back. Yeah. So like, I mean, what Mr. Kurtz like goes mad. Does that seem like a safe? He, he does. Yeah. Right. He does go mad, but I think what's most important is, is why he goes mad. Right. I mean, he, he, he does represent the best of European civilization. And I, I love that you brought up his, you know, his, um, his, his financial or economic background, because in, in uh, the Victorian age, 
even being the best of civilization would include being someone who represents this new new possibility of social mobility, right? I mean, that really is the best kind of person you can be is someone who maybe started out with little but has the ability um, and to join the bourgeoisie, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. The nouveau riche. Um, And so, so Kurtz really does represent the ideal of, uh, in every way of what this Victorian, late Victorian society valued. Um, And that was not enough to save him. I mean, that, and not only was it enough to, not enough to save him, it is, it, it is suggested again, this is more like a poem that this is actually what, um, what helped to corrupt him because he doesn't just go mad. He becomes entirely completely corrupt because he, he becomes a God unto himself and wants to be a God to others. Yeah. So he, he, yeah, he, um, which, which I think is, yeah, it's one form of madness to see yourself as, as a kind of supernatural creature. And, and I think that's, I mean, I wonder if you share this perception, but I think that's like part of the racism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So he's gone to a place where he sees himself as so superior and there to completely like, I don't know, redeem or transform or like he's supposed to play some, I don't know, like he's supposed to enact like the white man's burden or, or whatever idea he's got at the back of this brutal exploitation mm-hmm. of the people there for profit. I mean, that's why he's there. He's there for profit. He's not there to save them. But somehow he ends up in a position where he thinks that he's worthy of worship, you know, Mm -hmm. worthy of this, this other kind of status. And I think it's connected to the racism. No? Oh, oh, absolutely. This is, it, it absolutely is. And, and this is what's so exciting to me about this text is because, because it was speaking to what was happening at that time and place, but it speaks so much to where we are right now today. Um, of course, the entire, and, and I talk about this in the introduction to my um, edition, which is, my edition is published by a Christian publisher that, you know, is a Baptist um, publishing house. And so I, I'm really trying to speak to my own people here uh, because we are the ones <laughs> uh, who have done so much in the name of missionary work and spreading the gospel um, and Christianizing nations and people. Um, but our motives and our approaches have never been entirely pure. And so this novel, although it, you know, includes characters who kind of parrot those standard lines like, oh, we're taking, you know, we're taking the light, taking the light into the heart of darkness and um, to these, you know, uncivilized lands. Um, Conrad is showing not only are those, are those motives and methods you know, not pure, um, but that even those who were saying that to themselves, those who were saying, professing, they believe that knew better at some level, at some level, they knew that they were not just trying to do good, just trying to serve God. Um, And so that unwillingness to interrogate our own methods and motivations is perhaps what you know, Kurtz represents in just um, seeing himself as superior and, and being unwilling um, to 
learn from those that even ostensibly they were trying saying that they were serving. Yeah. So there are two things I really want to talk about. There's the encounter between Marlowe and Kurtz, which I think are, you know, some of the, some of the best parts of the novella. Certainly Kurtz's death um, is, is written in a way that's um, very, very powerful. But um, let's talk about that encounter because for a long time in the story, Kurtz is just a weird shadowy thing. He's the stuff of lore. Right. Mm-hmm. He's the stuff of legend. Like everyone sort of recognizes that this guy is 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 something special in some sense. He's important enough that, you know, there's a whole mission to get him. But there's this, you know, there are these exchanges where people say things like, Oh, you know, I I, I would lose track of time when I was around him. Mm-hmm. He he lifted me up. He's so powerful. And there's all this talk about how Kurtz knows all this poetry. So he's like this outsized figure and then when he finally meets Kurtz it's like what does he find he, he finds basically like someone who's he's described almost like a living skeleton right he's just um just emaciated and uh and and dying um and yet he still has this power over um, the natives that he's surrounded himself with, this lover that he's taken, and of course the Harlequin, who is his um, sort of disciple and uh, and uh, I don't know spokesman. Um, and I mean, even I, I just to go back to the, to the way that the story is told, it, it's so it's so important because. Marlowe keeps he keeps learning little things about Curse. I mean, Curse is basically presented as a you know he is in the story um, to the reader and to Marlowe a mystery, mm-hmm. and um, he keeps hearing different things as and as you said he's built up as this sort of legend and this lore, uh, and um, and so he just the layers just keep coming off the the myth and the mystery keeps growing larger and larger, and it. It you know takes us into the into the heart of darkness, um, and then when he discovers, it's just narrated so powerfully because the first thing that he sees even before he sees Marlowe are these you know what he thinks are sort of decorative stakes outside his his home that turn out to be heads on poles. Um, you know, human sacrifices. Now, none of this, you know, this, again, Conrad writes this sort of, it's very evocative and suggestive. Um, Lots of, it's not everything, every detail isn't filled in, uh, but that's because there is a darkness that pervades everything. We don't know exactly how or why every horrible thing that happens in the story happens or why it has happened. Um, And that's in a way what makes it more realistic is because that is how evil works. We really don't understand it. Um, and so that's yeah. what we find in Kurtz. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously I wonder what you think, but it strikes me that um, when he finally encounters Kurtz and he sort of sees like, you know, I mean, he get. I mean, he only ever gets like a dim glimpse, you know, he never, it's not like he spends any lengthy amount of time mm-hmm. there because he's basically dying by the mm-hmm. time he gets yeah. there. But I think, yeah, I think he finds it very mysterious, but mysterious in a very unnerving 
sort of way. Like he can't, I mean, I think it's somehow important that he can't make sense of this. Mm -hmm. You know, like he's not able to just put a narrative on it and be like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, that's what happened. There is no definition or category. I mean, one of the words that gets repeated throughout this is uh, in one form or another is um, absurdity, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, the definition of absurd is, you know, something that lacks a rational, reasonable explanation. Um, and that that's what makes this novel, you know, really modern in, in the school of modernism, but also situates it in this place where at the end of modernity, whether we, you know, we call that post-modernity or late modernity or, or whatever, we are in this place where we have reached the limits of science, as you talked, uh, the limits of science to answer everything and to define everything about the human condition. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things the novel, the novella is, is directly grappling with. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and and I also think this is probably related to the choice of the narrative structure, but I think that there's a question about the limits of intelligibility, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the, the limits of traditional narrative or, I mean, you know, there's a question about the meaning of this and it's not given an answer. <laughs> Right, exactly. And, and I think that's part of, you know, I, I mean, I think that's part of it. You know, there's sort of a suggestion that either there's not an answer or if there is an answer, we don't have any way of knowing it. And I think, yeah, the emphasis on the absurd, which is an even str- another word that often, so mystery is a word that occurs often in this novella, inscrutable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a right, that you'll right. find a lot. Right. Um, in addition to horror and terrifying, right, right. all these other uplifting um, <laughs> <laughs> concepts. But, but yeah, inscrutable. And I mean, this is kind of another question. You know, he's, there, there is this idea of, a, a darkness, an encounter with a darkness and, you know, an immense darkness, an inscrutable darkness, an overwhelming darkness. I mean, it's like all over. What is the darkness? Is the hmm. darkness like the sin of the human person? Is the darkness just evil? Is the darkness Africa? What is this immense darkness that he's confronting? Because it's never really made articulate or is that hmm. the central mystery? I mean, I think it, I think it's all of these things, and 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 it is a it's that's again what makes the the novella so powerful is and evocative is that it's not completely defined. I mean, the darkness is the inscrutability, it is the absurdity, it is also the darkness of the heart of humankind, right? Um, because that's what that's that's what we find has happened to Kurt. That Kurt, who is supposed to be the best and brightest, and the best representative of all that is good and noble about European white civilization turns out to have, have had a confrontation with the horror. Um, and he has become the most horrible person in this novella. Um, and nothing could, you know, all that European civility uh, did not protect him from that. And we, we find that you know, that the most civil people in this story um, are the natives, right? They are the ones who are the most human, uh, or at least, you know, I think that can be argued. Yeah. I mean, I sort of have the sense that like Kurtz is this enigma that points to a much larger enigma, 
you know, right. but I'm, I'm just going to read just to kind of whet people's appetites for how great mm -hmm. this is. I'm going to read like what I think is probably the, the, the best point in the novel, which is when Kurtz dies, but this is, uh, this is Marlowe, like describing Kurtz. He says, his was an impenetrable darkness. I looked at him as you peer down at a man who is lying at the bottom of a precipice where the sun never shines. But I had not much to give him because I was helping the engine driver to take to pieces the leaky cylinders to straighten a bent connecting rod and in other such matters. I lived in an infernal mess of rust, fillings, nuts, bolts, spanners, hammers, ratchet drills, things I abominate because I don't get on with them. I tended the little forge we fortunately had aboard. I toiled wearily in a wretched scrap heat unless I had the shakes too bad to stand, right? And, you know, he's he's coming on to Kurtz and Kurtz is basically, whatever, he's in his death throes. Anything approaching the change that came over his features, I have never seen before and hope never to see again. Oh, I wasn't touched. I was fascinated. It was as though a veil had been rent. I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power, of craven terror, of an intense and hopeless despair. Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment of complete knowledge? He cried in a whisper at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror, the horror. And that's the end of Kurtz. I mean, and I think this really sticks with Marlowe. Like, what did he see? Mm -hmm. And we don't know. But it's like somehow to me, like this, this encounter, you know, this inability, like to make sense of this, this unknown, like, what did he see? Um, what happened there? It seems to point to some deeper kind of inability to make sense of things for Marlowe, like inability to make sense of what the hell he's doing in the Congo, mm -hmm. <laughs> inability to make sense of the ideas that are at the back of this, inability to make sense of like, really, I think what he's doing in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he, there's a, there's a place early on and I'll have to see if I can find it where he talks about um, early on when he's talking about meaning and uh meaning you know being traditionally kind of like inside the the, the meat inside of a nut mm -hmm. um but yeah. he, you know which is which is like a frame narrative but he he, he doesn't find meaning that way i'm, I'm not going to take the time to, to find it but he doesn't know he can't find the meaning of this yet he also just confronting it and knowing that the horror exists it's like that has to be enough. I mean, that like we can work with that. Um, that's the choice that he, the choice of nightmares that he has, I guess, uh, was it, to use another phrase, um, is when we reach the limits of our knowledge, when we reach the limits of our understanding, we still have to make a choice even based on that, um, even without knowing, uh, you know, knowing what 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 it is that we're trying to um to avoid or what it is we're trying to to gain there's a sort of confrontation with the truth of things it's very mm -hmm. stark mm -hmm. you know but it's also interesting because the story ends with a lie mm -hmm. and i want to talk about that because there's this earlier scene when marlo insists that the one thing that appalls him the most is a lie but of course the last thing he does is tell a lie 
-hmm. What's going on there? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I think there are a number of things going on there, you know, maybe from the most obvious sort of literary uh, perspective, we can say, well, you know, Marlowe is not what we would call a completely reliable narrator, right? Um, there's that element. And the, and the story is try setting us up for that. It's really just keeps constantly pointing out to us that this is a, a, a human narrator. He's not, you know, he's limited in his knowledge and understanding, limited in his, his virtue, I suppose, and his, and his, um, and his, his goodness, I guess. Um, but he's also, he may not be entirely reliable as a narrator, but he's also fully human right so he he the, he is inconsistent um he, and he does I, I we can read that as just being inconsistent but he hates a lie but the lie that he tells is well motivated right i mean he's trying to you know in he's trying to spare uh the the intended's uh you know kurtz's fiance's um from knowing about the darkness and knowing about the horror. And yet, hopefully we, as readers, we don't want that either. Right. I mean, who wants to be the person who is, uh, lives in, in bliss out of ignorance and, uh, deceit. Um, so there's some, you know, there's some misogyny <laughs> there possibly too, and trying, trying to, uh, protect the woman from knowing the horrible truth. Um, but that, that, it's, it's all of those things, I think. Um, and it is also asks us to think about the lies we tell ourselves. Um, and again, the lies, you know, within the world of the novel, the lies that we're told in order to um, commit some of these horrific atrocities on a people. I mean, that's part of the historical background of, of this novel is that, um, is that um, the, the people in the Congo had some, of the most horrific um, atrocities uh, committed against them. I mean, not in the well, it was a kind of genocide. Yeah, it was a genocide and, and it was beyond slavery. I mean, it was torture and mutilation and yeah. oppression and tyranny. Um, and this is the historical background of, of the story. And yet the lies that that entire civilizations told themselves to just to justify this. Um, and so I think that's one of the other major themes in this novella is, you know, what kinds of lies do we tell and why? Yeah. I mean, I sort of had the sense reading it uh, this time. I actually hadn't read this since high school. So mm -hmm. I, I read Heart of Darkness in high school and I absolutely loved it, but I just hadn't been back to it. Um, cause you know, whatever you move on, you read right. other things. And, uh, and I read other Conrad, right. But I just never went back to this. But I sort of had a sense this time around, you know, that again, this particular lie is, is pointing to, to something outside of it, namely that, you know, even for those who go into the heart of darkness and see the evil that is happening in the Congo, they don't necessarily have the courage to go back and communicate mm. the full reality of what they saw forever. So you keep, mm. so you keep up the lie, but the fact is it's very easy to, um, it's, 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 it's very easy to keep up a lie when, especially when the truth is so unpleasant. Um, so, so yeah, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty dark novel. Now it's also a, so a, a novella, sorry, it's a dark novella, but it's also contested. A lot of 
famous literary critics or literary figures like Achebe or Said think that it doesn't belong in the canon because it's irredeemably racist. So Achebe has that famous essay about it. I can't remember what it's called. You know, he's really hard on Conrad mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and saying that his portrayal of Africans is incre incredibly racist because basically all that the Africans are is and the opposite of Europeans. So it's just like, you know, the Europeans are enlightened and the Africans are ignorant and, you know, so on. And so it's just like a negation mm -hmm. of something. They don't have their own kind of humanity that's being recognized. What do you, what do you say about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important um, essay to read uh, and to to counter and also to read um, his his own novel, Things Fall Apart, which is, which is you great. know, a, yeah, it, it, it's fantastic. It's yeah. it's just, yeah, mind-blowing. Um, but at the same time, I mean, and, and I agree with that criticism. I mean, I mean, con to some, to some extent, I mean, Conrad certainly uh, saw the world through the eyes of a, of a white European and he was formed by racist attitudes um, and language and sees things through that lens. But I also think that he, he was interrogating that. I think, you know, even the, the central irony of the novella is that the civilized people, the, you know, the people who are supposed to be civilized, the Europeans going to civilize this dark place in Africa were the uncivilized ones. And it's the Africans that are civilized. You know, even that whole scene on the on the steamboat where where Marlowe's talking about how he, you know he's just talking about the cannibals, which again that's a racist trope. I understand that, but um, and it 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 certainly is objectionable now. But Marlowe it talks about how um, they have some sort of internal inner restraint, so that they don't you know even though they're hungry they don't. Um, give in to, to their cannibalism. And so over and over, we see the Africans exhibiting it in, not uniformly, but often exhibiting the kind of restraint, which constitutes civilization that the Europeans do not exhibit there. I mean, there's just excess all, all over the, the narrative in terms of what the Europeans are doing. Even that passage that you read earlier of, um, of Kurtz's death, that, vision and his last breath and his exclamation of the horror contrast so sharply with what Marlowe is talking about a couple paragraphs before. He's like, gives this whole catalog of like these tools and machines and material things, um, these scientific methods and tools that he's obsessed with, um, that his world is obsessed with, that, that, that Europe needs in order to survive in the Congo and they actually don't even work. They're all decaying and rusting and, um, and breaking down. Um, that contrasts so sharply with the, with the really human scene that we see in Kurtz's death. I mean, what it means to be human is to seek this knowledge and to, you know, to want this vision. And then when we confront evil to recognize it as, as a horror. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I found the Achebe, uh, essay so interesting because it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, it is kind of racist. I mean, what do you expect given, <laughs> I mean, I just right. sort of like anything, frankly, in the 18th, 19th century, right. I just expect it to be 
pretty racist. But the question is whether or not it still has value as, as art. And, 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 you know, I, I think that it does. And I think it's important to, to be able to have conversations about the respects in which it is racist, and yet it can still be worth reading. And it's also just sort of ironic to me, you know, reading this essay, because of course, a lot of his own literature is like super sexist. <laughs> But like, I don't think that's a reason for not reading it, right, you know? Right. So any more than I think that, you know, that this is racist is a reason for just like tossing it in the in the trash bin. You know, I think it's important to like have these conversations. Final question then is how your, how your vision in On Reading Well kind of applies to a text like this? Because I think, you know, you sort of set up your book where it's like, I'm going to go through each of the virtues and I'm going to talk about how these are exemplified, you know, in the text. And is it kind of be hard? Well, maybe it wouldn't be. I mean, how, how would you do that sort mm -hmm. of thing with Conrad? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. So I, again, I think it has to, it begins with paying attention to the form. I mean, this is a work that really, you know, form form is overwhelms the content almost. I mean, you could, if you were going to summarize this story, it would take, you know, a paragraph to summarize the events, I guess. And so, um, so we have to really understand what it is to experience um, the reading of this, of this work, um, the very dense evocative language, um, the way that we journey along and, um, and have revealed to us as it's revealed to Marlo these truths about Kurtz and the way that that all as we go along we should be questioning what what Marlo is reporting how he's reporting it what he's seeing what he's not seeing and it's kind of through that um that dialogical process of our, you know, our conversation with ourselves as we're hearing Marlowe's story that I think helps us to arrive at, um, at a truth, you know, or some truths about the human condition, about the, the, the themes in this novel um, that allows us to become more virtuous because we're not just being told what to think. We're not being told, oh, this is what racism looks like. This is what imperialism looks like. This is what's wrong with, with uh, you know, with, with the 19th century uh, Europeans. We're being required to go through this process and ask these questions ourselves. And I think that ultimately um, cultivates virtue in us because it requires this kind of circumspection and this prudence, uh, this patience, this diligence, this um, examination of different points of view. And and uh, I think that's the experience that the novel offers that you could never get from just, you know, an outline of the events. That's beautiful. I love it. I'm just so glad that you came on and it was just a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure to be on and uh, you, you picked a great text to talk about and we only just <laughs> scratched the surface. So hopefully others will be inspired to go out and read the whole thing. And, um, and that's have the dream. Yeah, that's the yeah. dream. You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and is produced by William Dethridge. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or on the app Lyceum. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Pod, and we're also on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, then please be sure to let your friends know to check us out and also leave us a positive review. 
For our next episode, I'll be joined by Agnes Callard, professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, to talk with me about the Sophoclean tragedy, Antigone. Until then, be well and keep reading. Thank you.